Hey, let's take a quick break to tell you about our sponsor. There's no secret formula for customer service, but there is an all new service hub from HubSpot and it's bringing service and support together in one platform so you can deliver the best experiences possible. You can free up your customer support reps time with an AI powered help desk so you can easily support and grow your customer base. The secrets out service hub is a game changer. Visit HubSpot.com slash service to learn more. All right, we got a friend of the show here, Jordan Harbinger. He's one of the guys who's been advising us on how to build this podcast because his podcast is way more successful than ours and has been around. He's been doing podcasting for like 12 and a half years, which, Jordan, that's got to be as long as podcasting has existed, right? Yeah, I think podcasts have been around for like 14 years and I've or 15, and I've been around for 13 of those. So yeah, when I started, there was no way, there were no iPhones, so you couldn't get podcasts on your phone. You had to use an iPod to play them. Yeah, straight to cassette. That's how that's how long this guy's been doing it. Um so so Jordan, uh you know, I like I like your show. I've been binging it while in quarantine because, you know, what else am I going to do besides try to learn something new or improve myself in some way? And I got to say I like it because you do the you know, the interview style show where you go deep with a guest. I think uh you know, you had I was listening to the one with Tony Hawk, which was pretty awesome. And I got to say I like that you don't do the kind of surface level, you know, just just you know, pity patting around with the questions or trying to do, you know, inspirational fluff where you're just saying, go, you can do this. Um, so with that episode with Tony Hawk, what was that like? Because Tony Hawk's an icon. How was it, uh, you know, interviewing Tony Hawk? It was great. He's a really interesting guy, really open and fun. And he told some pretty funny stories. One, which was very apropos of what, what's going on right now is one day he walked into his agent or some sort of marketing team that he'd hired. He walked into their office. This is like at the height of video games where he's making, I don't know, 50 million bucks off these skating games and these brands. And he goes in and he says, look, I got this backpack that was made pretty shoddily and it's got my name and face on it. I don't want any more stuff like that. And as the agent, marketer, whatever, is sort of nodding his head and understanding, Tony goes, wait, what's that on your shelf? And it was a roll of toilet paper with Tony Hawk's name, face, and logo on it. And he goes, what the hell is that? And the guy goes, oh yeah, anything we put your name and face on does so well. We were joking that we could put your face on toilet paper and we'd still be able to sell it. And he fired them on the spot because it was clear that they didn't value his brand, which I thought was a funny story. And he's got a ton of stuff like that that he talked about on the show. That is epic. Uh, You know, I actually met Tony Hawk. Uh, We went on a trip to Africa, a charity trip together. And believe it or not, we were halfway up a a mountain in Ethiopia where, you know, it's a like this is a mountain village. And somebody saw him there and they were like, Tony Hawk. You know, that's probably the only English word they said to us all day. They identified Tony Hawk on a mountain in Ethiopia. That's how famous that guy is. So that's an amazing uh, guest to have on the show. Imagine being that famous <laughs> that you get recognized in the middle of countries where like nobody speaks your language and they maybe don't even have skateboards. Yeah, we were there trying to give people clean water. They didn't even have water, but they knew Tony Hawk. That's how that's how famous that guy is. Amazing. Awesome. Well, if you want to uh, hear more from Jordan, we're going to be having him on uh, more and more. He's a friend of the friend of the house. And uh, you should listen to his show. It's one of the podcasts that I would recommend. If you like Tim Ferriss's stuff, if you like our stuff, you're going to like his stuff. And so go check out the Jordan Harbinger show uh, on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, you'll find them there. What's up, everybody? Sean here with Sam and special guest for this episode, uh, Brent. Brent, how do you say your last name? Be sure. Be sure. All right, cool. Um, I've been trying to get you on for months. <laughs> I think our email thread goes back months. Um, the reason why is because I'm interested in the business of buying businesses. I, I've been looking to do this myself. So after I sold my company, I said, great, I got some cash. I can either put this in the stock market. I could do, um, you know, I can go gamble this on a riverboat or I can uh, potentially buy a cash flowing business that's a, a good, solid, stable business. And so I started learning about that world, stumbled around and saw permanent equity. And um, yeah, I've been interested in having you on on the podcast since then. So why don't you tell us, give us like, you know, the, the minute version of who are you and then also what is permanent equity? Yeah, so um, Permanent Equity is, uh, we like to describe ourselves as a family of companies that buys family-owned companies. So technically, we're a private equity firm now. Um, We were um, just a a small collection. It was my own capital. In the beginning, I was an entrepreneur and uh, and then accidentally bought a business about 10 years ago. And that's what led into kind of what we do today. Um, But What does that mean? You accidentally bought a business? 
Yeah. So uh, I had a mutual acquaintance say, hey, you should meet this guy. He's in your he's in your industry. And uh, he just got left at the altar for the second time. And I took that to mean I should try to buy his business because why else would you tell me that? He had no idea. He was just trying to connect two people that were, you know, in the same uh, in the same field or similar fields. And so uh, I don't know. I look about like, 24, 25 now. I looked about 13 or 14 then and uh, sat across from this guy and told him I wanted to buy his business. And uh, he he, uh, he laughed at me and said to two grown men to try to buy, buy my business. Uh, how in the heck do you think you're going to do it? And I said, I don't know. I'll figure it out. And we negotiated and, uh, he uh, told me no thank you, and uh, then seven months later called me back up and said, uh, all right, let's move forward and get it done. So, What was your company before? So I uh, started a, a kind of collection of regional marketing companies. Uh, we had started in 2007, kind of really got going in 2008 and nine, uh, which were, as you all know, interesting times. Uh, but uh, it actually allowed us to grow, and uh, we adopted some video technology that ended up becoming standard. We think we were probably the first people in the uh, – uh, in the uh, world to use it for commercial purposes. But uh, what does this mean? What's regional marketing? You know, we were doing, look, we were doing like ad agency type work. We were doing media buying. We were doing um, uh, digital work, um, you know, uh, trying to scrap and claw and, and sort of make a go of it. Um, you know, so you're just an, a- you're, you're an agency just figuring it out. Yeah, we were an agency. We had some unusual talents kind of under that agency because being in mid-Missouri, we didn't have access to a lot of specialty groups. So we started building out our own specialty groups. So we built out research. Um, we did some uh, mobile and app development as well um, and uh, and then some film work. So those were kind of the three unusual buckets that you typically don't get into an agency. And give us, yeah, give us a sense of the like level of success. I think a lot of people, one of the things we hear a lot is from the audience is like, they hate when we fast forward and someone's like, yeah, I did this thing. And then all of a sudden these amazing opportunities opened up and they sort of were like, wait, where were they before? And so give us the before picture. How were you doing? How was that business doing financially? Did it, was it a big business, small business? You know, what, what was that business like? Yeah. So we, um, so let's see here. So, um, I'm trying to, it's been, been a while since I've thought about the numbers. Um, so we grew to 26 employees, I think at the peak of that kind of before we were, um, so we were like, we were doing fine. I can make a living doing it. I uh, make a good living doing it. It wasn't, um, you know, the agency business is hard. It's really, really hard. And I think that's, uh, um, probably what I've learned in my career is I've made all the mistakes. And I've tried and tested a lot of business models and sort of taste and try something. And you're like, Oh, didn't realize how hard that was going to be. And you sort of, you know, move around. Um, and so, you know, I would say, you know, moderately successful regional marketing firm, um, nothing special. I mean, I would say, um, you know, when, um, um, yeah, when, when we bought the the firm that we did called Media Cross, um, you know, we were kind of co-equals is how I would describe it, kind of in the marketplace. Um, they were much more focused on uh, government contracts than we were. We didn't have any government contracts. And so I was really attractive about the acquisition. And um, being able to combine those uh, organizations uh, gave us a lot more um, cash flow than, than having them separate just based on cross-selling different products that we had and being able to fulfill a lot more of the um, – uh, a lot more of the uh, gross profit through sort of the larger organization that they've been farming out some stuff. So that was uh, that was kind of a nice combination. Wait, so did you buy that first company under the umbrella of your of your marketing business? Yeah, yeah, correct. Got it. And, and so so it wasn't its own entity. No, well, I mean, it was. I mean, if you want to speak technically, it was its own entity, but it was one hundred percent owned by me, and one hundred percent of the other firm was owned by me. So, I mean, it's shared resources. Got it. Got the board. it. So you didn't have a co-founder yeah. or any outside investors or anything. Yeah. So I bought it with an SBA loan. Um, thank God for the SBA. Um, and so, um, no, it was it was just a, it was an SBA loan and uh, rolled the dice. And so, just to give people a sense of where you're at now, uh, I think permanent equity. You guys raised a, a second fund. Uh, 248 million. It's a, a 27 year fund, which I think is interesting. And you could talk about that. Uh, and you have a 10 year investment period. And so, um, so the first fund, 50 million, second fund, 250 million, roughly. Um, so what are you guys up to explain what the model is here and why that should be interesting for people? Yeah, well, so um, if you think kind of from first principles, um, it, families got wealthy by uh, getting involved in a business and holding it for a very long time. And then over time, using those cash flows to uh, either fund new investments or opportunities. Um, and so we just have very much the same mindset. Um, you know, private equity is kind of the main methodology of how people have bought and sold companies in the past. And it's a very short time clock. If you think about it that way, um, you're really... Um, 
uh, from the time you buy to the time you sell, it really needs to be probably no more than four years or five years at most. And that's if you catch it kind of early on in the life cycle. Um, most private equity funds are seven years with three one-year extensions. So up to 10 years maximum. Um, I mean, technically, if you can't sell the asset, you can go longer than that and everyone gets irritated at you, but you're expected to sort of uh, have the capital returned. And so what that uh, forces is, is, you know, you just can't think longer than your time horizon for holding the business. And so um, when you combine that with, a, uh, you know, most private equity firms are trying to put in as little equity as they possibly can and maximize the debt. And so what you end up doing is you take these great family businesses that have been around for a, a long time, um, uh, you're sort of hitting them with a needle and trying to supercharge them to grow them and get a higher multiple when you sell. And you're making just very short-term decisions by necessity. Um, and you're opening yourself up, which is pertinent now. It wasn't as pertinent three or four weeks ago, but now you're opening yourself up to a lot of downside risk. Um, that you just can't withstand nearly as much shock as, uh, as you could if you didn't have any debt. So um, we've just really taken the opposite approach and said, uh, we want to own businesses like a family would. Um, so we buy with no intention of selling the business, and we're typically using no debt as part of our transactions, um, which in the private equity world means that we're the weirdest uh, duck in the world. So how yeah. much, uh, what's your total, what's the total revenue of the collection of companies then? Well, let's see. So uh, total revenue, gosh, I mean, uh, 100 and, oh gosh, 100 and. 80, 180 million, something like that. And then I imagine you guys try to run this like super profitably. So then if you have 180 million in revenue, I bet you have uh, 40 million in cash flow. Uh, let's see here. So hold on. I, I, you literally are putting me on the spot here. I've not done our calculations recently. Um, yeah, I mean, we're, 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 we're highly profitable. I mean, the organization does real well. Um, I don't know if we're at 40 million because uh, we have some lower margin businesses. Um, we're lower than that, but, but yeah, we do real well. Um, and, and look, I, I don't own all that anymore. Right. So um, just from a, like, I don't want this to, to come across differently than this. We've got investors. Um, the first fund owns uh, five of those investments. And, and then I own uh, four outside the first fund um, uh, that were the, the, the group that we put together before we raised that first fund. And then the second fund, we haven't deployed any of that capital. Um, and um, yeah, so we've got a bunch of dry powder. I mean, obviously it's, uh, been extremely fortuitous for us to raise the time that we raised. And, um, I've been having lots of conversations with our investors and, uh, uh, there should be, should be lots of opportunity and lots of pain out there, which is unfortunate. And we've got to try to tow that line. We can talk about it between being a white knight and uh, a lone shark. And, uh, that's not an easy one to tow. Right. And so, uh, so let's just, if we just take a look at the, the portfolio as is, uh, what types of companies are you trying to buy? So you're trying to buy, um, is it a certain price point? Is it a certain, um, business model? Is it a certain type of owner? What are you trying to buy? Yeah. So, uh, we first want to buy something that we think is going to be durable and around for a really long time. Um, so, you know, if you look at our current portfolio, we are, uh, in the swimming pool business, um, like digging holes in the ground, shooting with concrete. Um, we're also manufacturing in that space as well. Um, another company that's unrelated in the backyard product space. Um, so, bunch of different SKUs that sell through mass retail. Um, we are uh, we have a military recruitment firm. That was the first firm that I uh, acquired, Media Cross. Um, we've got a, a, re- a military recruitment firm. So is that like lead gen for military? Yeah. So we actually, uh, so we work, I mean, we have a, a number of different clients, but one of our main clients is uh, a civilian branch of the Navy that resupplies the ships that never come into port. So it's called Military Seal of Command. And we're responsible for uh, finding and onboarding uh, all of their uh, staff on a yearly basis. So it's like a staffing firm for a ship. Yeah, well, for a whole branch of the military. So it's, it. uh, um, there's, they're, they're staffing. I mean, there's a lot, uh, you know, 14, 15, 1700 uh, civilian mariners a year into that division. Um, so it's a, it's a pretty wow. large operation, but is uh, it digital? Uh, some of it's digital. Yeah, yeah. We have, uh, you know, online uh, application products, uh, but not mostly. Some- uh, I mean, there's a lot of physical activities as well. We have physical Crazy. recruiters and uh, it's, you know, online, offline. It's the, it's the not sexy uh, where the rubber meets the road, real deal business. All right, everybody. If you want to make your first million with a mobile app, you have to prioritize app performance first. And that's where our sponsor Headspin is here to help. You can get a custom Headspin benchmark report that will give you deep insights into your app's performance from cold and warm starts to errors, crashes, responsiveness times, including audio and video quality and biometric responsiveness. That's right. 
Art, they have a state-of-the-art global device cloud that provides unique carrier, network, device, OS, and app-level insights. And these are all happening on real SIM-enabled mobile devices that are in hundreds of locations all around the world, no SDK required. I like to think of it as having my own fleet of testers all around the world with the push of a button. And uh, you can get a custom Headspin benchmark report at headspin.io slash myfirstmillion. Again, if you have a mobile app and you want to see a benchmark report of your performance, it's headspin.io slash myfirstmillion. Can that be huge? Yeah, I mean, so um, we want to find a leadership team that we can partner with. Um, there's so many, um, you know, it's so hard to grow a business, right? And so a lot of the businesses we're looking at, we, we, we either call it has been right before the line of professionalization or maybe it's just crossed it. And there's this this real interesting you know, sort of in-between gap where a lot of these firms, um, they're, they're too big to be small and too small to be big. And the leadership team's kind of capped out. They're just brute forcing as much as they possibly can, but they don't have the, the systems, the talent on staff to be able to, to grow larger. And so a lot of the times we're, we're trying to figure out from them, you know, do they want to get bigger? There's some, there's some firms that we talk to and, and they say, well, even though they'll say, yeah, I want to get bigger, but the, you know, the CEO's answering 60 calls a day on his cell phone. And I mean, there's just no way. Right. Um, and so we're looking for a leadership team that I think has the base skills. It's really, really excellent at what they do. And we're looking for the, the company to have a position in the marketplace that is um, protected somehow, right? So, I mean, we're not looking to get into just commodity type businesses. We want them to have something unusual about them that um, we can really build on and help them grow. Um, and then, you know, this is going to sound like a, like a, maybe a, a no brainer, obvious one, but, uh, we got to get to a price in terms that, that, that are acceptable to both parties. Right. And, um, there's roughly 400 decisions that have to be made sort of during the acquisition process. I mean, it's 400 opportunities to, uh, not agree and, and it's very difficult and time consuming. And so, um, a lot of it is just trying to make sure that, um, we think that a deal could be done, uh, as well. And, and so when you say the leadership team can, you know, what you want them, you want them to scale. So why are they selling if, um, if you want them to stay in place? So they're not looking to kind of like go do something else or retire or whatever. You, you want them to continue to operate. And are they just looking for liquidity? Uh, what is the kind of core motivation to sell? And then do you have a problem where once they've sold or do you structure the deal so that they're still incentivized to, to, to stay on and do a good job? Yeah, it's a good question. So um, I, part of it is, so the leadership team and the, the ownership is, is not always the same thing. Um, so some of the, the organizations that we get involved in, um, the owner is, is very much part-time um, and hasn't been directly involved in the business for a long time. And so uh, for us, it's actually, that's a, that's a decently good situation because we'd love to just, you know, continuity of it, keep the leadership team, treat them well, um, and, and try to augment the talents kind of as we go along. Um, some of the owners that, that, that we got involved in uh, have stayed on and, and it's worked out great. The second body of the Apple they get down the road be much larger than, than um, even their first payment, despite them selling a, a majority of the company. Um, so uh, it really is, is situation to, you know, specific. I mean, I would say, um, yeah, for the most part, um, some are wanting to take chips off the table. Some, you know, realize that they need help in scaling and growing. Um, so it's, you know, it's a variety of different reasons. I would say that um, all of them, have an exit somehow in their minds. I mean, if you're in your call it thirties or forties and you want to work for the next, you know, 30, 40 years, um, you know, I, I don't think many people like that are, are selling their business, um, at least in the size range and the style of businesses that we buy. Hey, earlier you said that one of the best ways that families have created wealth was by having a business and owning it for a very long time. So something tells me that you study like the wealth creation process. I'm not talking about like just building a business that makes money, but like, like creating like a true wealth. And so I guess what I'm wondering is with these people who are building these companies, like I'm looking at, I'm, I'm looking at like things that maybe won't ever be like massive, massive, but can create great wealth. So I'm looking at game group. I'm looking at selective search, which is executive search meets personal matchmaking. That actually probably could be big. Anyway, um, when you're doing this, like what, what are some of the paths? I mean, like, cause in Silicon Valley where Sean and I live, the path for most people or the sole Silicon Valley stuff, which is sometimes bullshit, sometimes not, is creating something and raising loads of money and owning a very small percentage and not truly getting wealthy until after you sell it or not getting yeah. liquidity at least. 
and their salaries will be a hundred to one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. So you can't like, and you're living in San Francisco, so you're not building it there. But I have a feeling that you guys look at this differently. Is that true? Yeah, well, I mean, certainly the types of businesses. I mean, it, you know, we uh, we have a rule: we don't buy from somebody who's not already wealthy. Because if they didn't get wealthy doing it, we're not going to. Um, so they're already um, they're already doing well. I mean, these people are the chairman of the country club. They're they're um, in, in the geographies they're in. They're probably the people that you know the chamber of commerce would point to and say they're a really vibrant, good local business, um, or they're a bigger business, national business that's based in that geography. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, the the, the they're getting wealthy from cash flow. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. These things make money. I mean, you know, uh, the, you know, we're we're typically. Um, I mean, if we're getting involved now, the company's making more than $3 million a year uh, of real, you know, real owner earnings, what it sticks to the owner. Um, so uh, look, anybody, and these are closely held. So typically the owner will be one to maybe three or four people uh, at most. And so, you know, usually the, the one, two, three people that are, that are owning the company are doing very well. They've taken a lot of risk, um, which maybe sometimes is hard for people to see and they built it over a long time. But I mean, yeah, they, they've done well for themselves and um, they're successful in, you know, separately and outside of the transaction itself. And so the, the owner, let's just walk through a typical one. So uh, I'm, uh, you know, hypothetical owner of a business that manufactures wheelchairs. We're based in Oklahoma and I'm the owner, I'm the sole owner. And I, I pull in, let's call it $3 million a year owner earnings and owner earnings would be different than sort of EBITDA in this case. Right. So you're, yeah, I would say EBITDA minus uh, um, uh, operating interest, any uh, sort of necessary capital expenditures to keep the business on current trajectory and a, a normalized uh, compensation structure for the owner if they're in leadership of the company. So it's like kind of if you hired somebody to run the company for you and you made all the necessary reinvestments, how much would be left over for, at your discretion where you could either right. try to inject it back into the company and grow it further or buy a boat? So, so fill in the blanks for me. So if I'm making $3 million a year, what's a typical EBITDA then for that company if the owner's pulling in $3 million on, on the types of companies you look at? Yeah, I mean, probably EBITDA would be three and a half to four, something like okay. that. Probably. And then, like, say it again. So that was on $3 million in, in owner earnings would be $4 million in EBITDA. Roughly. Yeah, roughly. I mean, three, three and a half to four. I mean, it depends on the, the, the type of company. I mean, we looked at an aerospace company uh, a couple of years ago, and they were doing seven in EBITDA, and owner earnings was like three and a half or four. Why? So it depends on because of because all the investment. He, so just, oh, they, had, they, just, they needed a, a, a large cash buffer. No, no. They, they're having to reinvest in equipment to just keep their market share and, and sort of stay steady in place. It just, you know, um, all that cash flow would be rolled back into uh, buying new equipment, buying more inventory, you know, all the, all the type of things that the cash would be sucked into. And how are they getting the money out of the business? I mean, uh, are, they, is it, are they typically LLCs? Or yeah, typically, I mean, it's a mixture. I mean, I would say probably 90, 10, maybe 85, 15 is uh, LLCs. Um, but either way, I mean, if, if they're a C corp, you'll typically see owners, you know, paying themselves a lot to, to avoid that double taxation. So they're just paying themselves big old salaries and just yeah. having to pay 50% tax. Yeah. I mean, if you live in California. <laughs> and so, so let's, let's keep going for a second. So let's say you're at uh, three, three and a half to 4 million EBITDA. And when you guys go to buy these businesses, what type of multiple, of course, it depends on industry and it's very dependent, but what's the range? Is it 1x, 2x, 3x, 4x? Is that li- is that the sweet spot of kind of the bulk of your deals? Yeah, I would say kind of three and a half to five and a half would kind of be the be a normal range. Um, right. I mean, we maybe we'd go higher for a really high quality asset, but I would say that's a pretty normal range in our segment, which is, you know, kind of our strike zone is three to eight million dollars of owner earnings. Um, so in that range, I mean, on the upper end, you can get into more traditional private equity territory and, and, um, you can see some, some, well, you used to see as of three weeks ago, this is, again, I got to reorientate myself to the new reality, but, um, um, yeah, I would say three and a half to five and a half times. And then there's usually a component of that that's held back, uh, earned out or downside protected in some way. So we're typically paying two to kind of two to three and a half times cash at close. And then the rest kind of on, on the upside, depending on what happens. Gotcha. So you might have a, let's say $10 million price tag, uh, for the cash at close and then plus maybe 4 million, 3 million bucks, uh, that's, that's earned out. So now you go to SBA and what you were saying is that you guys don't do debt. You go, you guys do no debt or you, uh, use less debt than a, per, uh, a typical private equity firm. Yeah. So, so the SBA was on the first transaction I did. Uh, 10 you don't do SBA. My no. own money that we have no, we have no involvement with banks uh, or the SBA or anything like that now. So, so you guys just do cash deals. You say, here's 10 million bucks. 
uh, we're done. And why don't you use debt? Yeah, well, so um, debt's one way to take a good company, make it a, a fragile company. Um, you know, the, the more debt you're layering on and the um, sort of the wider the variation of outcomes that you expect to happen. Um, and obviously, pandemic risk is something that was not on a lot of people's radars, us included, uh, until recently. Um, but it's a, you know, it's a good example of why we think that um, not levering these companies, especially in the beginning when you're starting to get to know them. Uh, I mean, until you own these companies, you just don't know what you're getting really until you get you know underneath the hood. And there's always more risk there than you think there will be, right? So, right. Um, you know, our, our mentality has been go in with, with all equity, no debt, um, try to keep them very, very uh, robust uh, on the balance sheet and make sure, and we're buying these with full balance sheets attached to them, right? So working capital is all included. So the net worth of the company will be, um, you know, fairly robust going into the transaction. And then of course, as we, over time, as we build cash into these companies, um, then we can decide what to do with it. Uh, but working capital bucket is kind of like the, you got to fill up the bucket first right. before the owners can get anything out, right? Cause you got to keep the, the, the machinery lubricated. And when you buy a company, what is the first three months, six months? Are you hands-on with that? Is it, uh, do you have, you have an operating partner who does that? How do you guys make sure that you, when you buy an asset, you don't a, destabilize it, and B, you actually start to grow it, which is, I assume, why you bought it in the first place. Yeah, so so our, our philosophy, there's a lot of uh, private equity firms out there that have these like, you know, 30-day, 90-day, 120-day plans, right? Um, we don't do that. Um, what we try to do is, is take a humble attitude towards it and say, look, we, we, we know some things, we have some talents, but but we want to learn and, and, and uh, come alongside them. They're the experts, they've been doing it for a long time. Um, so there's a team of 16 of us. So so it's not certainly if I don't get the impression this is just me. Um, there's people far talented, more talented than I am on staff, um, and they're um, we, we have a dual hook in structure post close. So our financial team hooks into their financial team and creates feedback loops, and then we have a um, we call it a portfolio partner. They're kind of a board of directors in a box that um, uh, is overseeing kind of the executive leadership, um, helping make very high level decisions. Um, I mean these are autonomous operating units. I mean so there's these are these are not we're not injecting these people into the companies to run them, but they're in touch with the leadership teams all the time, um, doing, you know, a variety of different types of uh, calls and meetings throughout the year. Um, and how many companies are there? There's nine. Um, that you guys own? Yeah. Got it. So that seems manageable. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, so for every kind of three to five companies we, we acquire, we got to hire one high-level financial person and one portfolio partner. Um, and that's kind of their, their grouping of companies that they're kind of running. So we're almost creating like a fractal, if you want to think about it that way, down into the organization so that it scales as sort of linearly in that way. So Andrew from Tiny, uh, Tony and I are friends with him and we, I just shoot the shit with him every once in a while. And he emailed me he like tweeted this thing and he sent me the tweet of how he saw, met a guy who had a cool furniture store and he goes, Oh, this is neat. You need to put that on Shopify. And okay, I'll partner with you. Let's do it. Now I own part of it. And he also did the same thing with like a local news outlet in Victoria where he just like, seems like he's spinning up stuff so fast. I'm like, Andrew, I don't know how you track all this. This is crazy. Sure. Uh, tracking nine is easier than tracking nine is hard, but it's a little simpler because it appears from the outside as though he has got, 40 different things. Sure. Uh, how does, how does that compare? Do you think with, with something like tiny uh, and does, does, does keeping it on top of all this? I mean, uh, that seems really hard to focus on where to put your focus. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I know Andrew a little bit. I, I don't know him super well. I mean, it seems like he's been successful. Um, I think they're getting involved in, 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 for the most part, more internet-based, uh, software-based yeah. type companies. Um, so it's just a very different model. Um, uh, so I would say um, I have no idea how they're organized internally. I can tell you on our end, um, is it a lot of work? Is it difficult? Of course it is, right? Um, anything worthwhile is going to be hard. Um, you know, internally, how we've created that structure, though, it's, it, it, it creates a very manageable um focus group, right? So you can, you can allow uh, a small group of people to be highly focused on, on certain outcomes as opposed to being all over the place. I mean, I, if it was just me and a partner of mine, like that we were trying to ham and egg this thing, like I'd go nuts. There's no way, especially right now. I mean, with all the turmoil that's happening, um, there's just no way you can keep everything separate and, you know, watch legislation that's coming out and watch legal and accounting and meet deadlines for audits. And I mean, it's, it takes a full team. And so, um, yeah, I mean, we're obviously blessed to have that. Earlier, you talked about the one of the things you buy a company. I, you, you okay? So you said that there's 
there your sweet spot is in between like it working out like it, it working and it being professionalized right yeah um and i think that when i uh, so uh i started the company that i have uh i started when i was 24 it's it's a good business now but what i learned the hard way was that actually to make something more valuable you need to take yourself out of the equation as opposed to like you know, this Mark Zuckerberg thing where you're just going to super superman this thing into like existence. It's actually far more valuable, even if that means you have a lower revenue number to have it where it's like a machine where people can be, uh, where you have put people in place and it's not just on the shoulders of one person. Sure. Um, can you, and, and I learned this from David Hauser. Sean, you know David Hauser? I don't. Okay, this guy named David Hauser, he's one of our little, he's, we, we've raised a little bit of money. He's one of our investors. He started Grasshopper, which it was like, a, yeah. you know, Grasshopper? Okay, he started that. Okay, so it helps entrepreneurs. It, it gives small businesses a, a, a phone. So it's like Google Voice on steroids. And he sold it for, I think, $300 million. Really successful. And he wasn't even the CEO. He started it and owned the company and hired a CEO to run it. And he taught me how to do that. And I think that's fascinating. Can you talk, but, but that's different than what of our, a lot of our listeners probably think about. They think about if they're going to start it, they got to be like running the show. Can you talk about where you've learned this process and, and why, and, and I guess the companies who you've bought, how have they successfully navigated that to where the owner is no longer like the person? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, for, for us, I mean, well, one, I, I knew my own limitations. I knew that there was no way that uh, I could just brute force this thing on my own. And I mean, uh, I think always subscribe to the, uh, bring, bring people that are far smarter and more driven around you. Um, so that's how we build the organization. Um, I, I hope in three to five years, I'm completely useless and they just give me my ball of yarn and let me play with it. Um, so, um, but in, in the organizations that we look at, um, we, we call this founder remote. So this is probably the biggest danger of, of acquisitions is you buy a company that is that largely all of the goodwill is tied up in the relationships, expertise, drive of the founder. Um, and there's just no really way to transition those uh, separate from maybe coming alongside them and, and over a very long period of time, um, making that transition happen. So I, for us, we try to select against that. Uh, we want to see repeatable processes. We want to see a, a healthy layer of non-owner management. Um, we want to be able to see that, um, we always call it, you know, hit by a bus risk. Um, so if anybody in the organization can get by a bus and destroy the value of the business, um, that's just a no-go for us. But tell um, me what you've learned on these people. So how do I, I want to make my company like that. How have you, yeah. got, what, what have, who have, how have they done it best? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that the methodology that we've seen work the best is um, take the things that either you aren't good at or you don't want to do and start giving them to other people. And then at, over time, as you sort of continue to offload and offload and offload, it, you just kind of move up until eventually there's nothing much for you to really be working on. I mean, if you have a lot of free time and you have a lot of flexibility, um, we always talk about if you have the optionality to get involved or not to get involved, a lot of these owners, you being a good example of that, could probably add a lot of value if you chose to get involved, but you also know that the thing's going to work out fine if you don't get involved. Um, and so that's always ultimately the test. Now, um, we also have a lot of owners that we talk to and they say, oh, I'm not needed in the office at all. I, you know, this thing runs itself. And we say to them, oh, that's great. When was the last time you took a vacation? They're like, oh, I think three years ago, I went on a weekend getaway with my wife. And uh, yeah, you know, and you're like, really? So there's that balancing act of self-awareness as well. Is there any resources that you turn to or have turned to to learn this or that you can tell me and our audience to uh, turn to in order to learn how to do this successfully? Gosh, I, I don't. Um, it's more just, you know, getting hit in the face over and over again. Um, the hard knocks. And Brent, where are you finding these companies? So are, are you, is it a broker network? Are you, are there websites you use? Is it inbound because you do a lot of content or, you know, what is the, explain how you find the companies that you end up looking into and potentially buying? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we're fortunate now um, we do a lot of content out there. Actually, podcast is one of the things that, that's been helpful for us. Um, so thank you guys for having me on. Yeah. Um, but uh, um, we have, it's all inbound at this point. So we're not going outbound to anybody. By the way, the website. Oh, there you go. I got your book. If, if you're listening to the audio version, which you almost certainly are, uh, I'm holding up the messy marketplace, which is Brent's book. I bought this like, I don't know, six months ago. I bought it right after we sold our business, so it wasn't really uh, applicable. I was kind of like, oh, what did I do wrong type of thing? Um, but, uh, yeah, it turns out just timing was good. Uh, uh, you know, getting in before the whole world descended into chaos was a, was a good idea, a good time to sell. But I didn't know that. Uh, but you put out this book. 
And um, it seems like you do more content than than I would say the typical kind of buyer or private equity firm. Yeah, I mean, I so so uh, you know, I owe most of my career to just ripping off venture capital. Um, is is in in reality. Um, so you just look at how did all the you know Fred Wilson's, Brad Feld's, uh, Schuster's, uh, Andreessen, all those guys. How did they break into the world? And it was basically by pulling back the curtain and. Um, at helping educate people, um, and uh, so I mean that's what we've we've taken that that to heart, and we I mean started very early on, so we've been producing, boy, producing content, talking to people for probably seven or eight years now. Um, it's gone back a long time, and so um, yeah, over time that compounds. Right in the beginning, you're just shouting into the darkness, and no one cares. And then over time, you know, you sort of get people's attention. Um, our goal is just to be the first stop uh, for anybody who wants to sell their business. And um, we also try to be helpful on the back end. So it, all of it's inbound. We have a scout network, um, which is common in Silicon Valley, uh, but very uncommon in, in private equity. Um, so we have about 700 people now that, uh, that scout opportunities for us, um, which is fantastic. Um, and we obviously pay them um, when, when we uh, are able to consummate the transaction. And you have uh, a capital camp, right? Yeah, yeah. So Patrick and I... Uh, yeah, so we, uh, we we were complaining one night uh, about how all the events and finance were terrible and uh, how it'd be fun to get like a cross-section of people together because there's typically, you know, VC events, or private equity events. There's very few events that get sort of a broad cross-section of people doing interesting things together. And so uh, we complained about it enough. I, I, I said to Patrick, I said, well, why don't we just do something about it? And so he and I partnered up and uh, we hosted the first one last year. It was fantastic. Uh, about 250 people from 11 countries, uh, five continents came in. And um, that was great. Uh, we, had, we had a wonderful time. Hosted in Columbia, Missouri, my backyard. Um, but it was, you know, I think I, there was one other guy from Missouri there. So it was very uh, not, not a regional crowd, if you, if you know what I'm saying. Um, and unfortunately, this year we had to postpone it um, due to the virus. So um, we're pushing it to September. Hopefully that uh, we are able to flatten enough by then that uh, we, can, uh, we can have it hosted then. Give us some predictions about the virus and the, the way the sort of What's happening to businesses right now? You know, on one hand, uh, you said your timing was was good in the sense that you raised your big fund before all this, and now a bunch of businesses are going to need liquidity. They're going to need, um, you know, somebody who's who's a stable capital partner to to come in and buy them. Um, what are you guys seeing? What's your prediction on on how this is going to play out? Both for for you and for the economy, I would say. Yeah, well, so so for uh, well, let me let me say broader. I think what what we're predicting, and of course, no one has any idea, right? We're I mean, trying to do the best we can to triangulate information. Um, we think it's going to be a pretty long. Uh, if you want to think about it, a good analogy I heard was a is a blizzard, a winter, or an ice age, right? It's kind of a, the three stages, probably. Um, you know, I think the blizzard is going to last for another at least six to eight weeks, um, probably longer than that. Um, and then I think we're going through a period of, uh, it's gonna be hard to restart a lot of these businesses. So there's, uh, in, in theory, it sounds, oh, there's economic problems, it's no big deal. You just kind of go into hibernation and come back out of it and everything's fine, right? Uh, in practice, there's a lot of start stop problems. I mean, you guys have run businesses, you know, if you had to mothball uh, everything and try to restart it, I mean, you're, you're not gonna be able to do it, uh, or at least be very difficult to do it. Um, and so, um, I, my guess is there's going to be a lot of pain and suffering. Um, so in our portfolio, um, you know, because we don't use debt, we have good balance sheets, and obviously we have a financial firm to back it up. Um, I, you know, we're going to be fine. I mean, a lot of the businesses we're involved in have been doing better than we expected uh, probably two weeks ago. Um, with that said, you just have no idea where demand's going to go. And I mean, we're bracing and we have plans for, you know, depending on what level of pain and suffering, um, you know, happens, what, you know, what the plan is. And, you know, we're going to try to get the things back up and running as fast as we possibly can. Um, you know, the government intervention that just came out uh, is interesting in how it's structured. So the CARE Act just got passed, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes ago. Um, and, um, you know, it is, uh, it's better than nothing. Uh, it, it's going through the SBA and the SBA is um, to be generous, like the DMV of the finance world. And so um, it's not going to be an easy uh, thing to get all that money deployed. Um, also the, the SBA lenders that we're talking to that are at these banks I and mean, we're not using the SBA, but obviously if it's uh, forgivable loans, then it'd be insane for us not to, to participate in that. Um, and they don't even know what the rules are. Right. And so they're trying to get triangulated on, on what things are. Um, so I think there's gonna be a lot of confusion. I think it's gonna take a lot of time to get the, the money into people's hands. I'm not sure it's going to actually stem the tide as much as they think it will on unemployment. And so I fear that unemployment could go to 20, 25, maybe even 30%, which is Do you crazy. think that's realistic? Yeah. yeah. Fucking A, man. That's crazy. 
Yeah. To put that um, in perspective, to put that in perspective, the Great uh, the the Great Depression was what eighteen or twenty? It I think it, it touched high twenties. Okay. Um, so so I mean at the peak, and, and like I said, I mean I look. I hope I'm wrong, <laughs> right? Let's just sure. say it for what it is. I mean I, I hope that that's not that this is not a good environment for us. Actually, I mean this is an interesting. We could talk about it as being a uh, you know a firm that has a lot of cash right now. Um, I, I don't think this is a good environment for us at all. I would much prefer a 2008, which was much more shallow uh, downturn recession. Um, this, the violence of this is, is basically rendering all information uh, available um, like a non-issue. You just can't, there's nothing predictive about what's happened in the past and what, how it goes in the future. And demand curves, I mean, we don't, <laughs> no one knows. No one knows what the demand curve looks but like. But are you betting for a 20% or 30% unemployment rate? Well, I'm not betting on it. Uh, that's what I think's going to happen. Um, but I, you, I think you said you think that's going to happen. I think I think we'll probably touch twenty percent. Um, I think we could touch thirty percent. Um, yeah, and I think we'll see it in the next six weeks. Um, will be will be when it really comes down. My guess is I, I called jobs the the jobs number the, the unemployment number that came out. I had said uh, previously I thought it was going to be about three point five. It ended up being about three point three. Um, which was wildly higher than what the sort of consensus was a million. And it, look, if you're involved in small businesses and you said there was a million people uh, filing for unemployment, like I said, that's like a joke. Um, of course, it was going to be way higher than that. There's no way it couldn't be way higher than that. And I mean, what we're seeing is, I mean, I had, I had a buddy this week who laid off um, uh, 4,000 to 5,000 employees this week. Had another friend who laid off uh, 585 of 600. Um, I mean, and this is, that's just me. I mean, were they in the hotel industry or what, what was it just an industry that? Yeah. Food services one. Um, and, um, uh, construction was the other. Um, yeah. so it's just, it's, it's, it's a tough, I mean. And why do you say this is, uh, this is not a good time versus 2008? What's, what is the core difference there? Yeah. So the, the core difference is the violence at which this had, has, has downturned um, is, is basically, you could see in 2008, a nice trend, right? Line, like you could see it, it's kind of like a soft, you know, in private businesses, right? I'm not going to talk about the stock market, stock market and private businesses are totally different. Right. But in, in the stock market, it was, you know, you sort of had a violence to it and then, you know, kind of petered out and then had another violence to it. Um, this happened in, in fucking eight days. Right, right. I mean, obviously Lehman and, and all that stuff come crashing. Oh, down. no, I'm talking about right now. Oh, but yeah, right now. That's what I'm saying is right now in, in private businesses, it, it is worse in private businesses than it's reflected in the stock market right now. Right. Um, I mean, it's hard to know what's priced in and, and what do you do with monetary policy when you have basically an unlimited bid? I, I don't know, right? But I mean, when you look at it from the businesses that we interact with, it's carnage everywhere. I mean, you maybe have, I would say 90% of businesses have been adversely affected. 5% are probably, you know, sort of unaffected. And then maybe 5% have some sort of tailwind that's weird because of this. Um, but 90% are just, it is suffering. I mean, I, it is unbelievable what's happening right now. Mm -hmm. And I remember, I mean, Sean, like, four weeks no wow only two weeks whenever you sent me that link sean where you go the nba's canceled yeah i like a few hours before that i had booked a flight to germany <laughs> <laughs> and because uh, i was going to a conference so they paid for it but i like gave them my information i was they're like yeah the conference is on and then sean sent me this link on at seven or maybe five o'clock at night and he goes the nba is canceled i was like oh you mean like they're just pausing it for like five days it's like no 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 like it's done for the year the whole thing and then and then the next the next day it was like oh my flight's canceled everyone's flights like it was like right. that was only two weeks ago sean yeah that's insane i remember uh, people thought i was crazy i started working from home the week before everybody did because i was like hey i think there's like this once in a hundred year virus out there i'm just gonna start working from home we did one podcast together and i, and I was like yeah, I'm not doing any more in-person stuff. I'm not coming into the city. I'm not doing any of this. And then it just felt like day after day, it's like escalation, escalation. And now I think the the sort of the data is uh, outpacing the the fear even at this point. <laughs> I think that the, I think that the situation is worse than people realize even now, and because uh, it's growing exponentially. And so, so I, I totally hear you, Brent. You know, my my sister owns schools. My brother-in-law owns gyms. Um, my father, my father-in-law owns nursing homes. My my brother owns a concert promotion business. Right. Oh. And nobody prepares for zero revenue overnight for two months. You can't you can't plan for that. 
Yeah, we were talking about our revenue. I mean, I you know, uh, I, again, calculating my head, maybe we're, maybe we're going to be a one sixty this year. Let's say under normal. I mean, we may be a one ten or one twenty. I mean, we right. have no idea. I mean, it depends on how things go off the cliff, right? I mean, it's it's literally no one has any idea what's going to happen. What we know is that it's not good. Um, if you look across our business, I mean, our our military business is very robust, and obviously, we want to keep people, uh, you know, employed in that. Um, but I mean, if you look in construction, there's a longer lead time. The the, the sales cycle is longer, right? So you'll have a longer tail to it. But that's still, if you're shut down on this construction site, we were working. One of our companies was working on the Wynn Casino. They just shut everything down. I mean, there's like nothing right. to do. And so you have all the materials you bought. You have all the labor that's right there. You, everything you're coordinating it and. What do you do? I mean, it's like I, I said it was like prohibition except for everything. So where's the opportunity here? Well, I mean, the opportunity is there's going to be a, a lot of these family businesses that are very uh, durable, you know, business under any sort of normal-ish circumstances. Um, you know, would have easily gotten through a 2008, uh, which everyone would consider to be, you know, a detonation prior to this, um, that are going to need help and they're going to need capital to get through this. They're going to need capital to restart the businesses if that's what it takes. Um and as well as just taking some chips off the table. I mean, you know, if you're, there's a lot of people we've talked to that are, that are holding on for sort of uh, the last couple of good years and then they want to sell. And, you know, we had these conversations two or three months ago with an owner who he's like, look, I'm in my seventies. Um, I certainly can't go through another 2008, but man, business is really good right now. Like I'm just going to hold on for another couple of years. That changed. You know, um, it's tough. And, and by the way, I'm not saying that it was the right thing for him to sell then either, right? right? Um, I'm just saying is like, it's always a bet. And, you know, one of the things that is maybe nice, it's not, you know, if there's any silver lining in this is I think people had gotten certainly not immune, but had, had gotten a pretty good resistance built up to risk in general. And I don't think most people were seeing it. I mean, I, I, you know, most of the people we're talking to is, Hey, there's nothing on the horizon. There's no contagion that could cause things to go down. I mean, I would hear people say this all the time. I mean, what could it be? Could it be student loan debt? Maybe Ah, that's going to be contained. Could it be, you know, the bubble in private equity? Ah, that's going to be contained. No, gosh, we had no idea what was getting ready to come down the pipe. I think that's what Mark Andreessen or, or maybe Peter Thiel was talking about once, which is that when everybody keeps asking if thing X is a bubble, that's not the bubble. Uh, when, when we're all aware of it and we're all talking about it, that's usually not the actual bubble. It's something that a very few, you know, a small set of people are sort of saying, wait a minute, we've removed too many of the Jenga blocks here. This thing's about to tip. And, um, you know, the, it's a sort of ignored minority. Yeah. I mean, this wasn't a bubble driven thing. I mean, I, you know, it was a war. It, it literally is a war like that. I mean, I think that's the best analogy for it. I think, we're, I think this is closer to Pearl Harbor than it is to 2008. Yeah. Oh, I, I would. I mean, I would absolutely agree. And the issue is that, you know, for Pearl Harbor, obviously, a lot of people went over and fought, but it never come onto you know, home soil. I think this is the thing is everyone's fighting a war in their backyard. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that's ever I mean, uh, look, you, you don't know. You don't know what the death rates are actually going to turn out to be. You don't know what the infection rate is going to be. You know, I, I certainly don't want to be comparing it to things that are horrible traumatic events that affect generations and generations. Maybe and God help us if it turns into that. Um, but at the very least, I mean, the, the economic side of it is just absolutely unprecedented in every way right now. And anybody who thinks this is going to be a short like V recovery where it's going to just pop right back out of this thing. It has never been in a business. And, and those are most of the people that I hear that are investors saying stuff like that. They've never operated a business. I mean, you guys so, know. Well, like, if this makes you feel any, any better, Brent, um, I, uh, I feel horrible right now. <laughs> I, I, I called the hospital to get, I, call, I tried to get a, a test and they're like, eh, like, don't waste it on yourself, but it sounds like you have it. And, and so they think I have it, but it's not confirmed. It sucks. It doesn't suck that bad. But for a 30-year-old, it stinks, but it doesn't st- it, I The way I describe it, it just yesterday crossed the threshold to where I would stay home from work and not really? exercise. Really? So you think you have it? Yeah, well, me and the doctors, but it's not confirmed. He's pretty pretty oh. sure he has it, yeah. yeah I, I mean, like, like, breathing sucks, but it's more annoying than it is scary. Oh. And, um, yeah. I am so sorry, man. I had, I had no idea. I mean, I'm... Well, I know it's not look. My, no, my point is not to get sympathy. My point is to let you know. Well, you maybe sympathy. for most people, it's not the worst. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's great. I mean, and, and look, I, I hope that's the case, and I hope we can get back to some semblance of normal life. I think that the unfortunately the economic damage, even if you wave the magic wand and brought everyone back to these businesses right away, I I, I think there's a lot of damage that's been done, depending on how long your lead cycles are and all that stuff. But I mean, it's just 
it's tough. I mean, it's tough as demand dries up. I mean, you got to think about the supply chain all the way back. I mean, people aren't ordering stuff from factories, right? Because their demand's dropping off on the other side. If the fact, if the store said, no, 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 we want, you know, all of your inventory now, they'd say, we don't have anything to sell you. Right. Right. Because everyone's preparing for winter. And so, it, it, yeah, the stop start problems are just going to be tremendous. Wait, Sean and Brent, you guys are both, I mean, we are all, I have no idea where people are, but we all are people who probably aren't poor. Have you guys cut your spending? Oh, yeah. For sure, I uh, I did the the first thing I did was I cut the I cut my exposure to the stock market, which I think is gonna uh, drop like a rock now. Um, and so that was the first that was the first thing I did because that's more than spending is just wealth destruction. And so I wanted to avoid wealth destruction first. And then the second thing on your monthly subscriptions, I didn't I didn't go through that yet. Uh, but we have sort of um, like me and my wife now before we do something. Uh, we're like, yeah, do we really need to? And so we're, you know, it's starting to creep in, but we haven't gone and audited and said, hey, necessary, unnecessary, necessary, unnecessary. But yeah, you know, probably should and probably will. Even though like I have plenty of money to last for a very long time, I'm like, I don't, I, I'm going to buy the generic brand of this food. <laughs> we, we, we're still spending on food, but we, I mean, if you look at our, our bills in the past, it's been a lot around travel and uh, yeah. Um, yeah, we're not doing that. I mean, uh, we did We did spring, by the way, the best investment I've ever made. I've got three girls under six, and uh, we just bought a bounce house and uh, have it in the backyard. And by the way, that's the best it's the best three hundred dollars I've ever spent in my life. there's a business <laughs> there's a business you should buy. That sounds not sexy, but exactly. interesting enough. Exactly. Bounce houses for viruses. Yeah. yeah. Okay. My last question for Brent is this. You're, um, you're 25, 30, 35 in, uh, currently like, let's just imagine you are, I have no idea how old you are, I'm 37. but let's say you're young enough to like start. Get, okay. Well, let's say you're, uh, you're, you're starting your career. You're in the middle, uh, early part of your career now. Um, wh- knowing what you know about what makes, valuable companies and what builds wealth what are some businesses that you'd want to start right now and what would you optimize for and what metrics would you try to optimize for and how yeah i mean i, I think it depends on what you're what you're trying to optimize for if you're just trying to build well, i'm asking wealth. you well i'm asking you for, for me personally um i mean i i i really find value in in balancing home life and work right so family is super important to me so um my answer would probably be a little bit different for me and i want to live not in a big city and so that's okay i want to hear what you would do yeah, yeah yeah so if i was starting over today um i would probably uh start something in the construction space or home services space maybe office services i want to get in something that's that's um you know, I, I like uh, competing in areas where there's not a natural selection of people into that, right? So you don't want to be in the winery business because everyone in Silicon Valley that exits uh, a business goes and buys a winery, right? Um, and pumps a bunch of money into it. Um, like, I don't, I don't want to be in the, the film business because everybody who, you know, every son of a billionaire, you know, makes movies. Um, you know, owning restaurants is really difficult. I mean, separate from all the stuff we're going through now, um, because everyone, you know, that makes any money thinks it'd be easy and wants to own their own restaurant. So I like to things that sort of have a natural, um, selection bias against them. Like nobody drives by somebody building a swimming pool in Arizona in the summer and says, you know what, I really want to quit my job in the air conditioning and go dig a hole in the ground. Right. Um, so we want to, you know, get involved in things like that. I would, um, try to take something probably that that is small and partner with them that they already have the infrastructure in place the the sort of the the technical side and the systems there and then i would really try to spend some time um you know how can we use you know latest technology to uh, make us more efficient try to build something that's scalable sort of beyond a geography um and get a model down a billing model a sales model uh down that we thought was replicatable um and that really had some sort of mode around it and then i would try to um scale it over time um and hey, i think what specifically uh, yeah anything specifically I, I think it would depend on largely on, on what I could find uh, in the geography. I mean, here here in Columbia, I mean, there's um, there's a fantastic HVAC service company that's uh, still fairly small, but they've got great systems. They actually develop their own software. It'd be something like that that I'd want to partner with and say, okay, look, look you know, I want to get my hands dirty. I want to get involved in. It. I mean, I'm a, I'm not an investor by heart. Like by, I mean, I'm an entrepreneur. That's what I love to do, and that's how we think about our business is, is being operators and entrepreneurs. And so, um, I I wouldn't necessarily get involved in finance. I mean, finance to me is a mechanism that allows and enables entrepreneurship and and you know 
running real companies. It's not trading paper back and forth. So I would probably uh, get far more involved in in sort of non-tech entrepreneurship, which I know you guys are in Silicon Valley and this can fall in deaf ears. No, I, I, I like I like what you're saying. But you, you so you said HVAC. You said yeah, I'd say HVAC. Pools. Like, yeah, pools, lawn service. Um, I think, um, uh, I, you know, I like- Lawn service. Yeah, like lawn, like lawn and garden care type stuff. I mean, have you ever tried to get somebody to call you back? It's <laughs> yeah. You want to hear something cool? We had um, so Brian. You know who Brian Scudamore is? Uh-uh. Scudamore. One eight hundred got junk. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so the guy is the guy who owns it. His name's Brian. He's Canadian. He's friends with me and Sean. Um, I shoot the shit with him every once in a while. It's like a what is that, Sean? Like a five hundred million dollar a year company. He owns yeah. all of it, <laughs> and he um. We either me or some one of us asked him where opportunity is, and he goes, "Man, if I had to do the same thing, I would do one eight hundred got junk, but I would do it for uh, lawn care or for irrigation." Yep, yep, that type of stuff I'm talking about. Yeah, I mean, there's 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 all these like strange, I mean, niches that you can get into. What I would do is probably take my time and go and talk to a lot of people who are already in business and say, "What is your biggest problem? Like, who's the supplier that you're most annoyed with? Um, you know, what's the customer that you have that's just killing it? That type of thing." Um, and then I'd probably go try to snake my way into one of those uh, one of those businesses, and, and then just it's really just about getting a foothold, right? I mean, that's what you need is you need a foothold, and then you can start building on it from there. Um, but I mean, the, the problem is if you gotta if you've got a boat that you're trying to row that's rickety and, and it may look pretty on the outside, but it's just not going to go anywhere. It doesn't matter how hard you row it. And I think that's, in, you know, early in my career when I was involved in, you know, more of the agency business, that's how I felt. It felt like, I mean, I could just row that thing as hard as I could and I'd maybe get an inch further. Um, and that's where I just want to get out of businesses that are like that. Right. All right. Well, we should wrap it up. Uh, Brent, thanks for coming, man. Uh, if, if you're listening to this, and you want to get a hold of you. What's the best way for people to follow you? You know, keep 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 tabs become a scout whatever you want yeah 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 so so permanentequity.com is the is the website um and i'm on twitter at brent Bishore, uh, on linkedin i mean just hit me wherever um try to be very available and if i can be helpful let us know um yeah it's been wonderful to have you guys on man i man i hope you get I hope you feel better that that uh <laughs> that doesn't sound like any fun i'm now now you're terrifying me so i'm well no look i i my point was the opposite was to not terrify look do i seem sick to you i mean i I, well, I, I, I'm sleeping in, so I got, I didn't get out of bed. I, I didn't wake up until about nine thirty or 10 AM this morning. Cause I, I was like, I'm just going to sleep as much as possible. I'm drinking a lot of water. Uh, I would not exercise today. That's how bad I feel. I would not go to work today, but I definitely would not even consider going to a, a hospital. I, and normally I wouldn't even have gone to a doctor. Oh, all right. Well, so this is how I'm trying to paint this as, as in a positive way as right. as best as I can. Well, Sean, don't don't you get sick? All yeah, right, you can't get it through Zoom, so we're good. <laughs> All right, guys. Hey, take it easy. Really appreciate All it. Right. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Bye.